We're starting our discussions today with Jim Jordan again. We started with him yesterday. I guess people never get enough of our congressman in Ohio. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Layla Atassi, who are always happy when I say happy Friday. Happy Happy Friday. Friday. Long time coming, it felt like this week, but it is here. Let's start. Why was Congressman Jim Jordan shouting down Dr. Anthony Fauci so much in a hearing this week that Congresswoman Maxine Waters told him to shut your mouth? Jane Coon, I think a lot of people identified with Maxine Waters on this one. (laughs) Right. So Jordan gave his usual pugilistic performance as, you know, stand in for Donald Trump. Uh, using Dr. Anthony Fauci's appearance at a at a House committee hearing to to try to put him on the grill about coronavirus safety measures that that Jordan contends infringed on his liberty. So, you know, just for background, Trump, of course, did not care much for Fauci's expertise and scientific advice. He didn't like some of the things Fauci was telling him. And uh, Trump also didn't like the fact that Fauci was popular with the public. And as we know, as Donald Trump goes, Jim Jordan goes. So and Fauci, who you know, is now a chief advisor to uh, President Joe Biden. So Jordan apparently couldn't resist the chance to try to make Fauci look bad. So he just kept repeatedly demanding to know of Fauci when Americans would get their freedom back. He said 15 days to slow the spread turned into one year of lost liberty. You know what metrics and what measures, you know, what has to happen you know, before we get our our freedom. And Fauci, you know, proceeded to explain to him that these precautions, you know, can be lifted after we get enough people vaccinated, you know, and infections decrease. And Jordan just kept persisting. What's the measure? What's the standard? You know, he said our First Amendment rights and our rights to attend church and so forth have all been assaulted. And, you know, Fauci said, hey, I don't look at this as a liberty thing. You know, it's a public health thing. And Jordan said, well, it's obvious you don't look at it as a, a liberty thing. And, you know, Fauci said, hey, let's not get personal here, And which, you know, Jordan denied he was getting personal. But <laughs> Fauci also pointed out we have about 60,000 infections a day, which is a very large risk to have a surge here. You know, we're not talking about liberties. We're talking about a pandemic that has killed 560,000 Americans. And he just kept saying, you know, what what you're going to see is the more people get vaccinated, you know, you're going to see a level of infection come down and gradually there's going to be more flexibility. But, you know, Jordan wouldn't wouldn't give up on, you know, demanding this concrete criteria for lifting the restrictions. And, you know, eventually his time expired and the chairman of the committee Jim Clyburn of South Carolina gaveled him down and, you know, he wouldn't shut up. And that's when Maxine Waters jumped in there and said, you need to respect the chair and shut your mouth. Um, So, of course, I think that kind of plays into Jordan's whole cancel culture thing that people are trying to cancel him out. But, But, you know, but there's some falsity to what he did. One. Fauci answered his question. Fauci, right off the bat, Fauci said, when we get people vaccinated, he kept pretending he didn't have an answer. But. But he was also talking about to Fauci about reopening when it, the feds haven't closed things down. I mean, the feds have closed. Yeah. They've said you have to wear masks in airports and things. But 
the states have each done this. So so berating Fauci about when we're going to get our liberties back. Fauci hasn't taken liberties away. Fauci has advised people wear masks, take precautions, get vaccinated. So the whole thing was artificial. It was Jim Jordan performing on a national stage, abusing a respected public health official and really embarrassing Ohio yet again. I want to jump in here. This is Leila Tassi. I think Fauci should stop being so polite when he's being (laughs) kicked around like this. I want to see him put the onus on Jordan and say, you know what? The sooner you convince your people, your Trumpster population to get vaccinated, the sooner we can all regain our liberty. So that's your responsibility as a leader and go forth. I mean, he needs to take the gloves off. This is I feel like Fauci has gotten kicked around enough. This could be like a celebrity boxing match. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't exactly lie down, but you're right. I mean, he didn't get like right up in his face, but he just said, you know, hey, don't get personal about this, you know? Well, no, he should get personal back. That's how you do it. (laughs) No, actually, I think you show grace and you show maturity. (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right, man. We're off to a great start this morning. Yes, we are. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why can't Ohio restaurants find enough workers to keep their eateries open? Leila Tassi, this is distressing because the closure orders that came out with the beginning of the pandemic actually put a lot of restaurants out of business because they couldn't pay their leases and they couldn't pay their rent. And now the ones that hung on are trying to get going again, and they're being hit by another really serious handicap. That's right. My colleague Mark Bona did this story, and he caught up with local restaurant owners and found that they're all dealing with this hiring problem. It seems the demand for dining out is returning. Most of these businesses are are nearing their pre-COVID levels of business, so they expect to do pretty well this summer, but they can't get people to apply for their jobs despite competitive compensation packages. So one theory is that workers who were laid off during COVID couldn't find work in the industry during that period that you mentioned, and that basically they moved on with their lives. They got other jobs. They, they you know, found work in other industries. Some owners say between stimulus and unemployment money, the laid off workers lost the incentive to return to work. Another theory is that Young people who who typically seek out summer work and things like that, especially teenagers, are using this opportunity to really concentrate on building their educational resumes, which are more important than ever to get into colleges. So they're spending their summers volunteering or doing school projects or taking extra classes or doing extracurriculars, playing sports and that sort of thing to kind of pad that resume. And part-time jobs become a lesser priority in that kind of world. And uh, of course, there's also a lot of apprehension still about COVID. We're not completely out of the woods yet, of course. You know, one of the restaurant owners told Mark that he often will approach young people who come into his restaurant and talk to them about the possibility of, of working there and that they say their parents don't want them to work because of the pandemic. So, you know, many, many restaurants are trying to respond to this. Mark reported that quite a few of them are holding these kind of exciting job fairs to showcase their job openings. It's kind of wild. They'll have like taste testing and, you know, showcase all of the different uh, opportunities at their restaurants. Overall, Ohio's unemployment rate was is lower than the national average, which is 6.7. Ohio's is 5.5. So this is really an interesting phenomenon without a clear cause. I wonder what other states are experiencing. 
I also have a question. I thought that when you're collecting unemployment, you have to be applying for two jobs a week. And if a job is offered, you're supposed to take it. If that's the case, how could food service industry workers just decline to rejoin the workforce? Do you know well, that? Well, the, the rules were changed during the pandemic. I'm not sure ah. if that still applies. But with, with this, the striking fact was the $70,000 position that was offered with full right, benefits right. and no one applied. No. Yeah, that's strange. <laughs> This is Laura Johnston. I was really surprised by the hours that they were offering. These aren't nights and weekends because, yeah, that's that's tough to get people to want to work. But some of these are done by three o'clock in the afternoon and they sound like you're right. It's a lot of really good benefits. They're offering health insurance with these jobs. It's not just like, hey, here's two dollars an hour. Work till midnight. It is frightening, though. Uh, Last year, they all had jobs and they, they lost those jobs permanently with no no hope of restarting them. So you could see a lot of those workers saying, okay, I got to do something else. I can't have this. There's also questions about the future of the restaurant industry. I think a lot of people are going to be very slow to go and do indoor dining, even vaccinated. And even when restrictions are lifted, there's going to be that, that nervousness. I think we're all going to be germaphobes for a good long time. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What do we know about the Cleveland police gunshot killing of a man on the city's east side Thursday morning? Laura Johnston, during this week, this month, you just are hoping police don't kill anybody because they're, we are a powder keg nation with the trial that's going on and, and other shootings that are going on. So to find out early yesterday, Cleveland police had killed somebody was pretty nerve wracking. What did we find out? Right. And this is on the heels of another shooting of a, with a DEA officer with injured someone. So, you know, you're just that would have been like, what, 12, 24 hours earlier. So what we know about this case is that Cleveland police officer Daniel Piper, who's a 10 year veteran, shot and killed Ennis Lee Jr., who's 25 on Thursday morning on the city's east side. Piper, as well as some other fourth district police officer, had tracked Lee down. He had outstanding warrants for murder and aggravated robbery. According to police, they spotted him on East 134th Street around 8.30 a.m. They chased him into the backyard of a home. He unsuccessfully tried to scale a fence, and police say he pulled a gun. And that's uh, what we know. But he had been charged with a couple other things just in the last year, including an aggravated robbery at a fight at a gas station in June and some fire at a, a different gas station in September. The residents clearly were wary of this guy. They called the police to say he's in the area. And it was striking. You know, there are times where we try to get police video of shootings and it takes forever and ever because they play games. They turned over the video right away yesterday. So when they think the video proves them right, they're very quick to turn it over. There were a lot of police around. So it seems like this will not be a he said, she said kind of thing. It's going to be pretty clear that this guy aimed a gun at the police and was shot for it. The other shooting you mentioned is much more questionable, the DEA shooting. You know, the two DEA agents are sitting in a car in front of a house for hours, and a guy comes home who lives in the house, a house that had been shot into before, and he goes out carrying a gun to ask, what are you doing here? And he gets shot. He lived. But you're allowed to approach somebody with a gun in Ohio, and I think any of us would be anxious if two guys were sitting in front of our house in a car for hours, especially if we'd been shot into Lots of questions about that. The DEA is claiming that the the guy brandished the weapon at them. I think that's that's a little hard to believe, and there'll be lots more questions about that. But the good news is he lived, and he's being treated at a hospital. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Is there a chance that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine killed a 21-year-old male college student in Ohio? Jane Cahoon, this this is an interesting story. There's not evidence yet, one way or the other, but it's got a lot of people anxious, I think. Right. Well, the answer to your question is we simply do not know. And as you said, right now, there's been no evidence that's been made public to suggest that. However, we do know that this 21-year-old student at the University of Cincinnati was found dead Sunday about a day or so after he received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. The state health department said they're, they're waiting for the completion of a Hamilton County coroner's report and, if necessary, further guidance from the CDC. I guess if an adverse effect from a, a vaccine is reported to the CDC, it then leads to a federal investigation into whether the negative effects were coincidental or, or somehow related to the vaccine. But of course, this death comes amid all this heightened public concern about the J&J vaccine because uh, federal officials have paused administration of it because of concerns of, over this very rare possible complication that occurred in six women out of nearly 7 million people who were vaccinated these dangerous blood clots that they suffered after getting the vaccine. But this student's medical profile doesn't really match the, these documented instances of the blood clots. As I said, all six of them occurred in women, and the median age was 32. The onset of the side effects came like 6 to 13 days after they got the vaccines. And, you know, everything's still unclear about the even those cases, whether they're connected to the vaccine or coincidental. So they're just sort all sorts of questions. You know, the unfortunate thing is that this case got amplified on social media. There was a a writer with a pretty big following who's promoted these skeptical views about the pandemic and vaccines. And he used his social media account to to draw attention to this young man's death. That included publishing a private message from the student's mother, sharing the news with friends that said, you know, the family suspected a possible bad COVID vaccination reaction, but wasn't sure. And so this family ended up issuing a statement on Wednesday asking for patience and and privacy, saying, you know, we understand many want to know more about this death and we do too, but, you know, please understand we need to grieve in private. So we we checked with the Hamilton County Coroner's office and they said it could be like days or weeks before the autopsy is complete and and no information was available on that. So I, I guess to sum this all up, we, we probably have more questions than answers at, at this point. It's it's just a very sad situation. Well, we weren't going to do a story on it originally. We, we'd been working it and weren't going to write it until there was a resolution. But then because of the social media doubts being cast, we thought we should write a story to let people know this is out there, that a guy who got the shot did end up dying shortly thereafter, but that there is no evidence whatsoever yet to show ipso facto one caused the other. It is another Johnson & Johnson story, though. I mean, you don't see this stuff coming out with the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, but Johnson and Johnson vaccine seems to constantly be in the news. You had the Maryland facility that screwed up, a, you know, millions of doses, and you've had the the blood clot issue that that's being discussed. And here's yet another case for that. And we talked about this earlier in the week. If you had your choice, Johnson and Johnson or the Pfizer, what would you do? And some of our colleagues said, "Oh, I would take the Johnson and Johnson in a minute." 
I wouldn't <laughs> at this point be like, yeah, um, we just, we just have to be really cautious about this. I think we can't really draw any conclusions yet. And we'll, we'll just have to see what the evidence really shows. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Is Cleveland getting close to wrapping up the big project announced years ago to replace all of the city streetlights and install a bunch of surveillance cameras? Leila Tassi, I think this project was announced after you left City Hall. It doesn't go back to when you were covering it, but it goes back a long way now. It does, yeah. It took a couple years, but it appears that the city's streetlight replacement project is just about complete. They've replaced 55,000 out of 61,000 streetlights. The streetlights were once that kind of soft, yellow, glowy kind of light. And now they are these bright white LEDs that really make a huge difference in terms of, you know, the illumination and and also energy efficiency. It, this was a thirty five million dollar project that that Frank Jackson, the mayor, says would save the city about two million dollars in energy costs every year. And it also has other benefits. You know, you can on these these poles that hold up the, the streetlights, you can mount these security cameras and they have quite a few of them mounted right now, and they're used for police surveillance in real time. And the polls can also be used for things like equipment to expand broadband availability in the future. So far, council members are giving the, the new lights pretty great reviews. Councilman Blaine Griffin said people are actually out walking in his ward, whereas before they didn't quite feel safe enough to do that. And, you know, they're pushing for more widespread use of the cameras and other technology such as some kind of device that I guess can determine the source of gunshots. I, I didn't even know that they made such a thing, but apparently that's being tested on the east side right now. And they, you know, obviously council members like it enough to to want to see it deployed throughout the city. Yeah, this is this is pretty good news. I'm impressed that the city pulled this off. <laughs> Two years in city time is uh is a pretty short timeline for a yeah, project. It is. Yes. <laughs> the they had said at the front end that the cameras, they were going to focus those on trouble areas and they thought it would help them solve a lot of crimes. Anecdotally, I, th I can't remember, maybe two or three cases where that was the case. I wonder why we don't hear more about the effectiveness of the cameras in, in identifying criminals. Let me ask you this, though. I was, this brought to mind the uh, the police chase that ended in East Cleveland with the hail of gunfire back in, you know, whatever year. We had tons of surveillance footage. Was that was that from the public domain or or did that come from private cameras? Was that all it was a, pol police footage? It was a footage? collection. I think they collected it from everywhere along that route. Okay. I think they visited and put that together. Yeah, I mean, look, this was a great idea to get those cameras into high crime areas because you would think that a criminal would be less likely to put a gun in somebody's face if they're being caught on camera. We just haven't heard a lot about that. And I wonder how closely the city monitors it or do they just go and look at them after right. the fact because they're I trying mean, to solve it. Especially if you're going to have a thousand cameras, I mean, who's sitting there looking at a bank of a thousand, you know, screens monitoring Everywhere in the city. I mean, I don't know. Although, maybe. is there AI you could put on them where it recognizes somebody lifting a gun? I don't know. We ha we don't know enough about that. It's just, it's nice to hear that this actually happened the way they said it would. Yeah. Not everything does. It's this week in the CLE. How hard would it be to follow a train-loving group's idea of putting the Cleveland Amtrak station back in Tower City? Lord Johnston, this is a real bid to nostalgia, but there it does make some sense. Where the train station is now is awful. 
anything is possible, right? Because right now where the uh, train station is, is terrible. I literally don't know how to get to it. And the public square makes a whole lot more sense. It's where Cleveland Union Terminal was originally built in 1929 on public square. It actually used the building until the 70s. That's when it left because of high costs and they opened that new station in 1977. As far as I know, you can really only see it when you're looking out of the ballroom of the convention center. But All Aboard Ohio, which is this passenger rail advocacy group, it has no governmental power. It voted this week to recommend moving back to Tower City to make room for this huge planned service expansion that would add trains to Cincinnati, Columbus, and Dayton, as well as a couple other new routes. But is there capacity there to do that? Uh, That building has been transformed over the years into other things. So would you have to just build a new station there or is there the capability to absorb all that? It makes sense to have all of the modals in one place, right? I mean, that's where you get all the RTA trains and that's where you can get taxis and things. But what would it take? I mean, it sounds like this would be hugely expensive. I think it would be expensive. The Amtrak folks are saying they're happy to talk about that with partners in in Cleveland, but you'd have to get sign off from a huge number of entities, including Bedrock, Detroit, which owns Tower City, uh, from the city of Cleveland, which owns the land under the Amtrak station. But you're, you're right. I mean, I don't know if with the change in working from home with COVID, if there are fewer rapid trains running or what the capacity is on the actual rail lines, but it does make sense. And Amtrak says that they do believe in intermodal connectivity because if you're riding a train, you're probably not going to like park at the other station, right? So anything that makes it easier for people to get around would make a lot of sense. I was surprised. I asked about uh, train travel on my subtext account where, where a text message people every day, stuff we're working on. And people really don't want to invest in train travel. There were some that did, but the, the majority of people said, Americans aren't train travel people. We're not ever going to be. And this is not one of those, if you build it, they will come. This is a hmm. boondoggle. We're better off spending money in other ways. Uh, I was surprised because you know, everybody loves the romance of train travel, and there are a lot of benefits to it beyond plane travel. But, but well, and they I were heard, they were saying who they want Amtrak wants to to focus on. You know, some college students who don't have cars, business people that are just going to the center of the city, people who don't like to drive, environmentalists. They had specific people. I mean, I, I think it would be good to target. They're kind of marketing if they're really going to try to make it work. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Seems like all the trends from the beginning of the pandemic are coming back at the end. Cases are skyrocketing in Michigan, and now they're rocketing back up in Cuyahoga, the early Ohio leader. Jane Cahoon, what are the numbers, and why isn't Cuyahoga County purple with the way things are going? Okay, I'll try to tackle those one at a time. Yeah, Cuyahoga and Summit counties are now uh, near the worst in the state for the recent spread. And we're using this metric of the case rate that Governor Mike DeWine has made key to his decision for when he's going to lift his state health orders. So statewide, we're at 200 cases per 100,000 residents over the last two weeks. DeWine wants to see that number be 50. Uh, and that's up, you know, it just keeps going up. We're going backwards. We, we've talked about this before, but the highest rates among Ohio's 88 counties this week are just happen to be in North and Northwest Ohio, you know, not too far from Michigan where those cases, as you said, are skyrocketing. We got Lucas County with a number of 341. This is the cases per 100,000 again. 
Hancock with 304.8, Summit with 309.9, Cuyahoga has 280.9, and Sandusky 268.3. Just to give you an example, last week Cuyahoga was at 237.2, and that previous number, you know, for the previous four weeks was as low as 162. So uh, why aren't we purple? To to answer your question, the this alert system that they have with the with the various colors takes into account more than just the new case rates. It also factors in trends like hospitalizations, doctor visits and emergency room visits, intensive care unit occupancy, and other factors. So we just haven't had the sustained numbers in every one of those areas to be moved to purple. However, Franklin County was moved to purple uh, this week. Uh, that includes Columbus, of course. And uh, that became the first county on purple, the level four alert, since Hamilton County uh, during the week ending January 27th. So I guess they've been experiencing a lot of increases in people seeking health care for the virus. So things aren't looking so hot. I just I am fascinated by the way the beginning has come back at the end. And we we had gotten some of our top red stories at the beginning of the pandemic was the Michigan-Ohio comparison. But if you'll recall, when we started posting the county numbers every day, in the beginning, Cuyahoga was number one. Franklin eventually overtook it, and then we we weren't number one for a long time. But we're moving back up, and it's just, it's odd. I wish I understood why that is happening. Uh, We really don't have uh, a good idea. I'd like to jump in here. This is Leila Tassi. Uh, This Michigan situation is really getting me nervous. I, I don't, we talked about this before the podcast started. Why won't they just deploy more vaccine there? The governor, Gretchen Whitmer, is begging for it. The CDC keeps telling them to just return to lockdown and all the measures to flatten the curve. But that was our primary response while we were waiting for the vaccine to be developed. We've got it now. If Michigan is facing a vaccine shortage, give them more. Protect the population while there's still time. That wouldn't just benefit Michigan. We are their neighbors. It would protect us, too. I think I mean, if the problem there is that people aren't getting vaccinated, the answer isn't return to flattening the curve measures because those people won't respect the lockdown measures either. Vaccinate the people who want protection and and give the governor what she is asking for. I'm flabbergasted by this, and I'm so nervous that that we're headed in the same direction as Michigan. Except we do have a lot of people vaccinated here. So the whole thing confounds me and confuses me about how all of these trends are happening. You would think that naturally, with the the percentage of the population that's no longer vulnerable to the coronavirus, these numbers would start to reverse. And they're not. I mean, they're they're going up in in a big way. DeWine keeps saying they are, though. I mean, he keeps (laughs) being asked about that. Like, how are we going to get over this? These numbers are still... Going up, and you know, he just so do keeps we, saying, and he says, vaccine, we're in a race. Do we know race. in Ohio between between the people who have already had COVID and the people who've been vaccinated? What is our percentage of protection in Ohio? Do we know? I mean, no, well, I don't think they, we know. they threw out one figure yesterday, and I don't know if this is going to address your question, Layla, but like 154 people got COVID after they were vaccinated i think um fully no. vaccinated no that's right? not what, she's or, asking how protected the, are a how third of the population is vaccinated oh. what percentage of the population had covid and although together, Leila, are we re, are we approaching herd immunity with between those two groups but, yeah but, we're, we're not really near there yet i don't think and the problem is the people that had covid in the early part of the pandemic are not protected 
that the yeah, variant right, can right. hit them again. So it's really the vaccinated population that I think is key. And Ohio's moving along, although it's been, it felt, Jane Cohn, it feels like it's been at about a third for weeks. And even though we are vaccinating many thousands of people a day, when do we finally get to Yeah, I know. The older populations are really high in the level of vaccinations. But yeah, it's, you need to hit more young people. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for a week of vigorous discussions. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. Have a good weekend. Come back Monday for another discussion.